This morning is January 13th. It is 2008. Our message this morning is called Hanatize. This comes from merging the word Hannah in the Bible, so we'll be in 1 Samuel 1, with the word sanitize. <clears throat> Y'all tell me when you're in 1 Samuel 1. Now, as soon as I named the sermon, somebody pointed out that there's a right-wing political commentator who also uses the phrase. He uses the phrase in the sense that his name is Sean Hannity and he wants the rest of the world to begin to think like him and become Hanitized. Well, I like Sean and he and I think an awful lot alike about an awful lot of things. But I'm going to suggest this morning that he's not the model that we need to adopt. There is a woman in the Bible who lived during the time period of the judges named Hannah. And when we get Hanitized, or we see through Hannah's eyes, the whole world begins to change. All things become possible for him who believes. In fact, I told you that Hannah, and the word sanitized was how we got our message name, to sanitize something usually means that you take something that is faulted, something that is dirty, something that needs to be cleaned, and you make it useful for your purposes. You sanitize it so that it can be used. There are things that pollute the Christian life. There are things that have weighed us down. There are wrong motives and wrong attitudes that keep us from being used by God. Hannah is the model in the Bible of someone who dealt appropriately with all of the same feelings that we all have, with all of the same struggles that we all have, and she achieved the goal that God had for her life. So that's the sense in which we're going to talk about Hannah this morning. And uh, I have no notes this morning. I mean, save the margins of my Bible, which gives me an awful lot of liberty. And I ask for an awful lot of grace with that. Every once in a while, I walk up here without a net on purpose because it allows me to address the needs of the body in an unscripted way. So starting in the verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now we're going to go into his lineage. Isn't this interesting that we start a story by telling you where somebody is from and who they were born to? How many of you, when you get to these kind of things in the Bible, get intimidated because you can't pronounce their names? You see no reason to read this and you just skip right on down. Well, if you were reading this and you were a Hebrew, each of these names of these places is laced with meaning. The Hebrews are a little bit in this way like the American Indians. If you ever watched an old Western and you see somebody's name, Pero's name would be Ten Bears. Or somebody else's name would be Runs Like a Horse. And their names were action-oriented in some way it describes them. So a name had to do with function in American Indian society and in Hebraic society. So when we see that a place was called Ramathaim, <coughs> it's important that it means, Dave, you might write this up there, double eminence or double importance. When you see <coughs> that Ramathaim was set in a region called Ephraim, and you know by the native tongue when you hear this, that Ephraim means doubly fruitful. All of a sudden, you might begin to detect a pattern. As you're reading this, you see, wow, the guy's from the place called double importance, and he lives in the region called doubly fruitful. All of a sudden, something might start to stand out to you. File that away in the back of your mind. The area that this story is taking place is a certain man. Certain meaning that he didn't just pick any man, he picked a particular man. And then he tells you where he's from, and he's from the place of double importance. He's from the area of double fruitfulness. And then he says this certain man was descended from some people. Eliakim was descendant, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu the son of Tohu, the son of Zeus, an Ephraimite. The introduction tells you what region he lived in, and the region he lived in was double importance and double fruitfulness. It says that he descended from these people. Those people in order are Elkanah, Jehoram, Elihu, and Tohu. If you read their names as what they meant in the Hebrew tongue, it would be God has acquired or possessed. May he be merciful and compassionate. He is my God. The lowly child lives. How interesting is that? 
Literally, if you take an Unger's dictionary and you write down each definition of the name, it forms a sentence. A sentence that says, God has possessed. May He be merciful and compassionate. He is my God, and the lowly child lives. What I find so beautiful about this is that very introduction matches the rest of the story. God Himself overshadows a woman through His promise, through His Word. The offspring is merciful and compassionate. It could be said of Him, He is my God. And the lowly child would live forever. Does that sound like another woman a few thousand years after this? You're going to find out there are many, many parallels between Hannah and Mary. The song that Hannah sings at the end of the second chapter is the same in many respects its content as the song that Mary sang. You'll find out that their lives mirror each other in very powerful ways. Righteous women change the world. D.L. Moody once said that if you give him five righteous, beautiful women, he would change the face of the earth. He was living in a day when people were using women in an unholy way during advertisement. And he saw how the masses were moved by one pretty actress who endorsed a product. He said, wow, if the church of God and the women of God would stand up and be what they were called to be, the whole world would follow sway. There was a certain man. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you the last guy. <coughs> All of these men were descendant from one guy whose name was Zeus. He's a Levite, and his name means the honeycomb. When Jews taught their children... They took a honeycomb and put it in their mouths and rubbed it on their gums and then let them read the Word so that they would associate a honeycomb with the Word of God. They would associate the Word of God with something that was sweet. They did this back into patriarchal times all the way up to Jesus so that if you read the sentence with the definitions of their names, it would speak of a lowly child that lives and becomes the honeycomb the Word of God. How awesome is that? Do you think that God might work for centuries in advance to bring about His purpose? This guy had two wives. Verse 2. One was called Hannah, and the other was Penia. Penia had children, but Hannah had none. Much of our church emphasis is on Hebraic studies and Hebraic roots. This is because our church recognizes a debt that is owed to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel brought us the Word of God. The nation of Israel shed its blood through many, many centuries to maintain something. The cry of Israel is Shema, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The idea was a pledge against idolatry. The idea was that there is unity in the Godhead. The idea was that the people of God could be one with their God. And they fought for centuries and still fight to maintain that hope, to maintain that belief. And we've benefited from it. But in many instances, we're a little bit like two women that are married to the same man. We are bearing all of the fruit right now. All over the world, there are Christians who are in love with a Jewish God, with a Jewish name. And the nation that all of these things were meant for, the nation that all of these things were directed towards, seems a little left out in the cold. It's one tiny little patch of land surrounded by enemies. You could fit the nation of Israel in the state of Vermont eight times. If you took the Muslim nations that border Israel and their landmass was represented by a football field, right? On a scale, it represented by a football field. Israel would be the size of a matchbox, and we're dividing that up now. We're talking about a true David and Goliath story. Elkaniah was married to two women. One was fruitful in having children, and one wasn't. Listen to how this goes. Year after year, this man went up to his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. 
where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. I don't know how much you remember about Hophni and Phinehas, but these are not good children. They were born in the right house. They were called to the right profession, Levitical priests. But their sexual impropriety caused shame in their family. It actually caused their daddy to be cursed and fall over and die. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Before we read the sixth verse, the overview this morning is that these two women can be taken to be a Gentile church and a group of Messianic believers. That the Messianic believers, the nation of Israel, was meant to receive a double portion but has not yet received it. That it is the Gentile church that is receiving all of the abundance of the kingdom of God. And that very few people seem to understand it. When we have movies about Jesus, we hire blonde-haired and blue-eyed actors. When we speak about the names that are in the Bible, we change them from their Hebraic names, like Yeshua, to Greek-oriented names, like Jesus. And His mercy allows us to do that, and it still seems to work. The heroes. Men in the Bible like who we would call Solomon, but the Hebrews call Shlomo. The Jewish children would not recognize our stories because we have changed them into our languages. We've stripped, in many ways, the gospel of all of its Jewishness. Now, when I say we, I realize that none of you set out to do this, but we participate in it. We call their book old and our book new, instead of seeing it as one word of God. We said that they are bound by a law and cursed while we are set free and alive. We said that Israel has failed and the church will succeed. Listen to what this did in this story. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Romans 11, 14 the apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle Paul says, I make much of my ministry to you Gentiles in order that I may provoke some of my own people to envy and save some of them. I would submit to you this morning, the global picture is that God has allowed the Gentile church to outnumber Israel by far and wide. And He has subjected them to a reign of the Gentiles on the earth, but He did it for a specific purpose And this purpose will relate to you as individuals. He did it so that Israel would begin to look and say, we want our God to move in our lives the way those people say He moves in their lives. To provoke them to envy. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? (coughs) David, write downhearted on the board. One of the reasons that the nation of Israel does not receive when we quote our scriptures to them, their scriptures to them, something like, he grew up before us like a tender shoot. Of his descendants who can speak, or we quote scriptures from Isaiah, is because it's a little bit like Hannah refusing to eat the double portion that she was given. They are so upset by what they see as a Gentile God and a Gentile religion that they're unable for it to be palatable to them. So in our day and in our time, from the 70s forward, God is doing a new thing. He seems to be renewing a study of the Hebraic roots of Christianity among Christians. Our church's emphasis seems to be in that direction, although none of us are Jews. We're not trying to be Jews. We're not trying to worship as Jews. We're trying to re-examine the roots of Christianity and look and see if there's a way that we can communicate this message and it be a little more palatable to our friends, if maybe we haven't erred in some way. Now, as we talk about this, I asked David to write downhearted 
on the board. Because at this point, we're going to leave our global picture and we're going to talk about your life. What in your life has caused you to become downhearted? And how does somebody know when you're downhearted? Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? How do you know if someone is downhearted? Anybody? I would argue that the first place that it shows up is in their face. When you see somebody and they're doing this, what does that tell you? Does that reek of the joy of the Lord? Does it communicate immediate love and acceptance? Probably not. How many of you have walked home into the door, seen your spouse, and knew before they spoke that they were unhappy with you? Right? We can communicate an awful lot with just our faith. I want to read to you the first guy that ever did this. You keep your finger here, and we're going to read in Genesis. This would be Genesis, the third or fourth chapter, fourth, I think. Genesis 4, 6. Thank you. Tell me when you're there. there. David's there. Where are the rest of you? There, there. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. Now we know that Cain didn't do very well with that, did we? Did he? How do we know that? By his actions. Our actions will show what is going on inside of our hearts 100% of the time if you have enough time to properly evaluate it. You can't always look at somebody and know what's going on in their mind, but you can look at the course of their life and see what is important to them. For instance, a man that says Jesus is number one to them, that's all they ever wanted, Jesus is my goal in life. But they spend very little time with Jesus. What does that tell you? Somebody says, family is first. I love my children. I love my wife. I would do anything for them. When are we going deer hunting? When are we fishing? When are we working? Because I have no time for my family who is first. Have you all seen these examples of hypocrisy? You can nod your head. You've seen them? Have you been these hypocrites? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Something begins to happen when we realize we are not living out the abundant promise that we're supposed to. We're put in a position. Downcast sometimes is a right reaction. You should be sad when you realize that you have erred. But to stay there and wallow in self-pity was not God's design. There is only one who should be permanently downcast. Revelation 12.9 says more than downcast. says the enemy of the saints was hurled to the earth. That's put down with authority. To cast something down is to merely let it go. To hurl it down is to throw it down with force. We have an adversary. He should have a permanent frown on his face. We should never have a frown on our face for very long. Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? In Hannah's response to this, to stay in a position where you are downhearted and downcast means you need to be hanitized. You need to be cleaned, purged, so that you can become useful to God. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, saints, I'm fighting hard not to preach to you about the nation of Israel. There will be a day when the nation of Israel will stand up into the faith they were called to. Their acceptance of the gospel will mean life from the dead. But we're not talking about Israel. We're talking about you. In our situations where we have broken dreams, we feel like there are broken promises. We are hurt because others around us seem to be doing well, and yet we always seem to be failing. There has to come a day where Hannah stands up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. It's interesting, it says the Lord's temple. It's a tabernacle. But in any case, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Bitterness of soul. Keep your finger here. In bitterness of soul, she wept. 
What is it Hannah's bitterness in her soul about? She wants a baby. If you've ever lived with a woman who has had the baby bug drop in her life, they look at the clouds and they're in the shape of babies. Every magazine that comes to the house has a baby in it. You turn on the radio and that rock band is singing about a baby. All they can see is the promise of a baby. God put this in women's lives and men's. It fell on me too. He put it in our lives to teach us something. There is a strong desire. It's inbred in us. It's endowed by the Creator in us to have produced something in our life, to leave a legacy for God, to have left a mark, to have meant something to the world that we will one day leave behind. And to the women of Israel, they wanted to birth the Messiah. They heard the promise to Eve. They heard that somebody would come from a woman's body. What an honor. Talk about equal rights movement. When the God of the universe is born through a woman, that's the equal rights movement. She wanted with all of her heart to be able to produce something for God. And she was hurt and broken because it was not happening. This reminded me as I was reading it of Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you've ever read Matthew and you had no idea what poor in spirit were, was, Hannah's a great example, but Psalm 34:18 is also an example. Tell me when you're there. Psalm 34:18. Psalm 34:18 says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit close to the brokenhearted saving those who are crushed in spirit I don't know if any of you know what crushed in spirit is like actually I know a few of you absolutely do Isaiah 62 says it this way I thought it was Isaiah 62. I must be wrong. <clears throat> oh, you know what? Not Isaiah 62. It's Isaiah 66, verse 2. Isaiah 66, 2 says this, Has not my hand made all of these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When the word says that Hannah had a bitterness of her soul, and Jesus says it's the poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom, this has to do with you knowing that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. You're not quite in it, and you are broken over that fact. You would do anything for that. Like a woman yearns for a child, you yearn for God's will in your life. The promise that the Messiah gives us is that when we do that, we will find ourselves in the kingdom of God. That's the promise there. Watch this. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed much to the Lord. I'm going to tell you this morning that being bitter in your soul, if it produces in you a brokenheartedness before God that would do anything to get in His will, is a good thing. It ought to result in much prayer. Being, being bitter in your spirit, bitterness of soul that doesn't result in prayer and move towards the will of God will steal your life from you. It will kill all of your dreams and visions and it will destroy all of your fruit. Every time we come to a place where there's a trial, the loss of a job, the loss of a friend, the disapproval of a mentor, the death of a loved one, we come to a place where something has entered into our very soul. You can write spirit, soul, body on the board. Something's entered there. And when this enters, what you have previously deposited in you, what has been put in your spirit, what has been invested in your flesh, begins to tug at what has been put in your soul. 
Watch this tug of war in Hannah. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all of the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. How many things have you been so bitter in your heart, so hurt, so crushed or brokenhearted or poor in spirit over, that you began to cry out to God? There needs to be in us a driving will a driving force to do the will of God, no matter what happens. I would suggest that many times, the only thing that we've been broken over, hurt over, the only thing that we've asked God for in this kind of manner comes from James 4, and it's not necessarily good. In James 4, he says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Many times the reason that we are not succeeding The reason that we're angry is because we are asking for the wrong thing. Why did Hannah want a child? So that she could give that child's whole life back to God. Turn with me to Genesis 12. Hear how this faith started. If you don't want to turn, I'll read it to you. I seldom lie when I'm preaching. Genesis 12, the calling of Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. How many people want that calling? Yes, Lord, give me a great name. Yes, Lord, bless me. Yes, Lord, make me great. Have you never heard that? (laughs) Oh, people don't say it. But you can see in their eyes their ambition is tainted. Abraham received this calling for one purpose. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Hannah was broken in her heart because she wanted to receive something from God. She wanted to receive something from God so that she could give it back to God as a service. She wanted to be a medium through which other people would be blessed. Abraham was called to be the father of many nations because God knew that if he trusted him with a great name, Abraham would then turn and bless other people with that great name. What we hear in the church today is a craving for things. We hear a craving even for miracles and things. But why? Is it so that we can turn and bless other people? Or is it so that we have a great name for ourselves? 2 Corinthians 1.3 is the scripture I stumbled across while answering a question the other night. I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians 1.3 lays out the Apostle Paul's attitude in everything that he says and does. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Oh, well, that's nice. How many of you want comfort in all of your troubles? Nick, do you want it? Comfort in all of our troubles. He's the God of all comfort. Why shouldn't we have comfort in our troubles, right? But why did Paul ask that they would receive comfort? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Everything in the kingdom economy is produced from a yearning, a broken-hearted yearning for God. So that when you receive from God, you will have something to share with others who are broken and yearning for Him. Well, why does this God of ours want something that is broken? It's when we are broken that we realize we need to be fixed. As long as we walk around thinking we have all we need, we are all that we should be. He can't do anything with us. In fact, when men approached Him like that, His ambassador, John the Baptist, said, First, you go and produce fruit that is consistent or in keeping with repentance. 
Then come back to me and I'll baptize you. Saints, we are being torn in a situation where the world is yelling, bless me, bless me. Lord, bless me, Johnny, Susie, us four, and no more. Bless me. And we're told that this is a God of blessing, like Paul says, a God of all comfort. But the missing part of the message is what do you do with that blessing that He gives you? Well, preachers would say, you give it all to the church. They wear a tithe box on their head. I'm not trying to get your money out of your wallets and into a plate. We don't even pass a plate. There is a tithe box in the restaurant. What I'm trying to say is when we don't receive our dreams and visions from God, when they don't come to us in a way that impregnates our whole life and gives birth to a new way of life, it's because we have the wrong dream and the wrong vision. We're wanting something that we're willing to fight and quarrel for that is not worth having. How many young people have you know that craved wealth? What a trick question. How many old people have you know that have craved wealth? Let's examine those who have received it. Y'all ever heard the stats on lottery winners? Have you ever thought if I just had more money, everything would be okay? Really? Well, those that have all the money that they could possibly spend, how's it working for them? Not so well. Money is not the answer. We need new dreams. We need new visions. We need to figure out what it is God wants to accomplish through us and then be willing to be broken in any possible way that you might become pregnant with His vision, His child. God has acquired or possessed. May He be merciful and compassionate. He is my God. That lowly child lives. The lineage of Samuel. The lineage of Samuel was a double blessing. His mom received a double portion from her husband. They lived in an area that was doubly fruitful and doubly important. We're always talking about ways to increase the size of our tents and blah, blah, blah. I'd rather increase the size of our vision. I'd rather live in a place that is doubly important to God if nobody else that is doubly fruitful in God's kingdom, if nothing else. I'm willing to be downhearted at times. I'm willing to do that. If what I'm downhearted about is not being fruitful enough in the kingdom, I'm willing to dream and want bigger things from God. If my motive for those bigger things is that it might pass through me and into other people. This is godly. I think Philippians 3 teaches us, Philippians 2, teaches us that this is the attitude of Christ. That He lowered Himself, made Himself nothing for our benefit. And so as the result of that, He's received everything. Self-centered Christianity is one of those oxymorons. It ought never be able to say those words together. They're the complete antithesis of each other. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me. Not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all of his days. Keep your finger there. I want to read you one more scripture that's been on my mind since worship. If you really love me, you can pray I find it. How many of you love the Lord and study His Word so much that you'll stand up here and speak for an hour with no notes? I'm not saying that to brag on myself. I'm just curious. If your Bible was taken from you today, <clears throat> how much of the gospel could you share with people? We've had it all of our lives. Fred works for an organization that will put them in every hotel room, in every hospital bed where they will let them put it. <clears throat> how well have you taken advantage of that kind of unfettered access to the Word of God? For this reason... For this reason, this is Colossians 1.9, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with knowledge. Anybody ever worked and pursued for knowledge? Sure. It's a noble thing, right? Well, it depends on what you do with it, doesn't it? The knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
And we pray this in order that Paul prayed that they would receive the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual understanding. What a high and lofty prayer. Take the word Colossians out of this letter and say, this letter's written to you, John. Well, John's another biblical name. This letter's written to you, Brandon. I pray for you, Brandon, that you're filled with all the knowledge of God's will and every bit of his spiritual blessing. That's a pretty lofty prayer, isn't it? And it follows these words. In order that you may live a life worthy of the calling. Why do you want the things that you want? Who in here would like a new iPhone? I mean, look, if I'm getting it out of the pulpit right now, who wants it? But why? I'm not trying to trap you. I'd love an iPhone. Be great. I don't want to pay that bill they pay each month, but it is not wrong to have things. But we do need to examine our motives. We need to begin to say, why is it that I want to be a chemical engineer? Why is it that I want to be a doctor? Why is it that I this or that or the other? Where is your ambition coming from? Because the Almighty God will give you vision. He will give you power. He will give you everything that you need, but it's always to one end. The service of His saints. A life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing up in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of God. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. When we are crying and brokenhearted, why are we there, number one? Number two, when you are being rescued... It is for the purpose of doing something for other people. She was downhearted, but in her brokenness, what did she do? She pledged something for God. Well, that's not such a new idea, is it? Everybody who's ever been in jail said, Lord, I mean, at least I've read. Lord, if you will get me out, then I will never do blah, blah, blah. Isn't that what you usually hear? Lord, if you get me out of this, if I beat this rap, then I will never do that again. God's not interested in what you will never do again. We do not serve a God who is honored by what you don't do. We serve a God who says, if I get you out of this, what will you do? The God we serve is not a God who marks your character by the things that you abstain from. The God we serve is a God who marks your character by what you do that is like Him. In your bitterness of soul, when you have been crying out to Him, let Him give you a dream that is something that you can do for Him. Saints, practically in your lives, when you're depressed, who in here has never been depressed? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, well, 100% of us are guilty then. The best way to get rid of depression is to get off your butt and go do something for someone else. Well, one time I went on a mission trip and I saw they had it so much worse than us. That is so, that's as deep as my bathtub. <laughs> you want to be rich in the kingdom? Go find somebody who has more than you and has every reason to be blessed in every way and serve them too. It's not about who's in greater need, saints. It's about you doing something that is selfless. Her goal and her vision here is selfless. She wants to bring forth something that will change the planet. But give it to God. Give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all of his days and his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hmm. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving. But her voice was not heard. Eli thought, she's drunk. And he said to her, how long will you keep getting drunk? How interesting is that? Eli sees something and he makes an assumption. We'd have David write the word assumption on the board, but I think you all know how that one already goes. It makes something out of you. He says, she's drunk. And then immediately jumps to another conclusion. 
How long are you going to keep getting drunk? If she was drunk, it'd be the first time she was drunk, wouldn't it? There's no record of her being drunk anywhere before this, huh? Why do we have such a desire to put labels on people? Why do we see somebody who makes a mistake or has a weakness in all their lives? That's what they are to us. There's a young man that I know that walked up to a preacher and said, God's called me to be a prophet to the nations. We're 15 years from that event, and that is still the way most people look at that young man. Never mind the fact that he has grown out of that, that he's matured beyond it, that his dreams and visions have been honed by experience and he's a much wiser man. Still, when people refer to him, that's what they think of. How godly do you think that is? How about naming somebody Doubting Thomas? Why not Christ killing Peter? Huh? We, we could have all kind of names for all of us too, couldn't we? There's nothing sadder than somebody who works in the service of God and makes pronouncements about people that are damaging and that were their own thoughts and not God's. But I'll tell you a secret, saints. You'll pay them to do it if they say nice things about you. Or at least all your neighbors will because that's what most churches are. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Wine. I'd always thought that was grape juice. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. What's she deeply troubled about? She wants to do something for God. Now there's a priest here who should be helping her. But he's got so much sin in his own household, he's not much help to her. Is it any wonder then that all the New Testament requirements for ministry flow from somebody's home? You know, it's a real Constantinian idea to build giant fortresses, put a steeple on top, some thin glass in it, and call it a church. I'm not against that, and one day we may have one. We, how about that? We'll call it Constantinian. Everybody will love that, right? The early church grew out of people's houses. That's not an endorsement of us. Our lifestyle is an endorsement of us. It grew out of people's houses because what you were in your home was what you were supposed to be outside. We've done it backwards. We've said you're a preacher, so in your home you should act this way. No, it's in my home I act this way, and that's what qualifies me to be a preacher. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. Who would admit that? You want that on a bumper sticker? Deeply troubled? I have not been drinking wine or beer. Huh. It's almost as if that conjunction joins those two words, as if they were similar or like substances. I wonder if there's... Maybe they just haven't read this in that particular seminary. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. You're accusing me of pouring out hops. You're accusing me of pouring out liquor. But it was my soul I was pouring out to the Lord. Turn with me for a second to Psalm 42. You see on the board the word soul. I had David write them in a particular order for a reason. I could teach you out of Genesis prophecies over all mankind, prophecies over a human being himself, but we don't have time to do it, so I'm going to tell you what I would say if I were going to teach that whole thing. I would say that you are a spirit. That is what you are. The part of you that is eternal, the part of you that never will die, never can die, is your spirit. When you look in the mirror, that is what is behind your eyes, is your spirit. But you also have a soul, a mind, will, an emotion. And you live in a tent called a body. When things invade our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, these are the thoughts that are rolling around in our mind when we're trying to go to sleep, when we're trying to do things. And in your spirit, sometimes you know something is right. In your flesh, sometimes you're driven and want something. Your soul is the bridge between the two. You have been born again, saints. That means that your spirit has been renewed. It's now of the substance of God. That means that your spirit knows what is right. Your flesh is yet to be born again. We're waiting for the renewal of our flesh. And in the meantime, our soul is kind of trapped in the middle. Sometimes it gangs up on your spirit with your body. Body wants to eat. I've been reasoning it in my head. My soul says, hey, time to eat, got to eat. Let's eat now. My spirit's saying, let's fast and let's worship God. 
but the two of them's voice is so loud that it overcomes my spirit. Biblical prophecy teaches us, biblical teaching teaches us to, as a spirit anointed by God, to force our mind, will, and emotions to set them on noble things and to make the body a slave to the other two. Listen to Psalm 42. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O my God. My soul thirsts for God. This is that word poor in spirit. Your spirit is poor because it needs something. It needs a drink from God. It's broken because it needs to be fixed by God. It is bitter because it needs something that it lacks. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. In English, we would say we bore our hearts or something. In Hebrew, it is the pouring out of your soul. She's being accused of being drunk, submitting to the influences of alcohol. But instead, what she is doing is unashamedly pouring out her struggle, her soul, before the priest and before God. Why? Why is she doing it? She wants help. Saints, when we are honest in our times of trouble, when we admit what is really going on in there, when we kick aside the facade, that's when help comes. But as long as we stand and look at each other and say, well, I'm okay, you're okay, Everybody should esteem me. Look how holy I am. And everybody should admire you because look how good looking you are. And all of these ridiculous worldly principles. You're not important in God's eyes and you're certainly not truthful. You're important in your own eyes and you're damaging to the kingdom. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Do you hear that? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Either David is a schizophrenic talking to himself, or he realizes that his soul is not who he is. It's just a part of him. And he is commanding it. He is speaking to it, saying, What are you doing, mind, will, and emotions, being downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. <laughs> How many of you have looked in the mirror, seen a frown on your face, and commanded yourself to put your hope in God? If you never have, you need to start. And you need to have a hope that you can claim is in God. I'm sick of hearing God wants people rich. I am sick to death of hearing it. It makes me want to vomit. Most people could not handle being rich to start with. How do you know that I know that? Because most people don't handle what they have now well. When we've been faithful over a little, God gives us more. Sometimes we need to re-examine the dream, the hope that we have. We need to look into the mirror and command our mind, will, and emotions to get in line with what God's Word has already revealed to our spirit. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you. From the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, as your waves and breakers have swept over me. There is something deep within this man that is calling out, that is beyond his soul, crying out to God. By day, the Lord directs His love. At night, His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Now you may not have a human being saying, where is your God? But instead what you have is a spiritual enemy who has been cast down and wants to pull you into the pool with him, telling you with every dream, with every vision, he's not doing it. He's not providing for you. You don't have what you should. Those people don't really love you. They're all crazy. And all of those wicked thoughts. 
So he says again, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And then he commands his soul to do something. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my God, my Savior. I'm suggesting that David and Hannah did not give their soul a choice to stay where it was. They instead commanded their soul to do what was right. And Hannah's pledge was, you give me what I'm asking for, Lord, and I will give it right back to you. David's pledge was, I will not stay downcast. I will praise the Lord. Verse uh, 15. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking beer or wine. Uh, dyslexic. I read it backwards. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish in Greece. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of Him. We're going to read three scriptures in the New Testament here that you just got to know. You should write these down. If you don't have them written down, if you don't memorize them, if you don't know where I'm going before I get there with this, spend some time meditating on it. Turn to Mark 11. Eli says, May the God of Israel give you what you have asked. I read you out of James that many times we don't have what we want because we've asked with wrong motives, selfish motives. Now I want to read you something in Mark. Mark 11:24. Brad Hall's the first human being I ever heard say this. <coughs> and now I hold Brad to that standard and myself as well. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. There are two powerful parts of this. When you pray for something, something that you have been yearning for that is not selfish, it is something that you want from God to be a blessing for other people, you need to believe that you have received it. So, well, I do believe that I've received it. Then why are you still downcast? Why are you still acting as if it's not here? You say, because it's not. But we're supposed to believe that we have received it. Nick said something to me a long time ago that I mentioned regularly. It was a blessing because he didn't know he was speaking the word of faith into my life. He said, Eric, there's only 10 of us here and you preach like there's 3,000. There's 10 today. Now there's 50 or whatever there is in here. We need to act like we have received what God has promised. Our actions honor Him. You know why? It means that what you received in your spirit, you have forced into your soul and now your body is carrying out the action as a slave to God. Does that make sense? Watch this. How many of you have read that verse? Oh, one more thing. Second principle there. If you're not receiving it, you need to ask yourself, am I withholding forgiveness from anyone else? Because God will not bless you while you're in unforgiveness. Period. Period. Will not do it. You need to get hanitized for that to happen. Have you ever been confused about Mark, though? You say, well, I've asked and I don't see it and I've stood and I don't, don't get it. Turn to 1 John. He will clarify it for you. Scripture is always read in light of other Scripture. The devil once spoke to Jesus and said, hey, throw yourself down. If you're the Son of God, he will bury you. He'll command his angels and they will bury you up so that you don't dash your foot against the stone. Is that Scripture or is it not? Well, if it's Scripture, why can't he stand on it and do it? His response was, but it also says, Scripture is always read in light of Scripture. So I'm going to give you two Scriptures in 1 John. One is 1 John 3. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, this is 321, we have confidence before God and we receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. Recently, David Hall needed a job. I spent the evening driving with David. And he began to pray for another job. So you know what, David? I want you to understand, you have a reason for confidence. A reason that not everybody has and a reason that at times in your life you haven't had. But you have become obedient to the commands of God. It shows up in secret service. It shows up in ways that other people don't know. But I'm your pastor and I do know. 
So you have a reason to believe that what you have asked for, God will give you. Am I lying, David? He has the job. We need to understand something. When we have no confidence for what we're asking, we might be asking for something that is not godly. When we have no confidence for what we're asking, we might not be in right standing with God. Kind of like a kid who knows that his report card's horrible. He doesn't quite have the courage to come ask for the weed or the Xbox 360. But when he knows he's done what his parents have required and that his dad delights in him and wants to give him good things, then he can come in confidently. Say, Father, I know that you love me and you've been looking for something to get me. This is what I would like. My friends can play with it. See, it's got to be for somebody else. John 1, 5 is the coup de grace scripture, if you will, for praying in God's will. First John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. I'm sick of hearing that that is impractical. I'm sick of hearing that it is misapplied. That somebody knows somebody who once asked something from God and they didn't get it. Then they asked with wrong motives. That they might spend what they got on themselves. The name it and claim it gospel does not work. Because God does not want people to be able to name and claim anything that they would want. It's not good for us. Even his nation of Israel, he didn't give them everything they wanted when they wanted it. He said, if I did, you would become conceited and say, look what my own arm has done. So he left struggles in their lives. They would give them the chance to yearn for him and see his deliverance. You remember Cain was told, you must master sin? How did it work out for Cain? Not so good. We know he didn't master sin. Why? His actions. I want to tell you that when we're talking about hanitizing your life, you need to begin to yearn for the right things. You need to begin to pray, looking for ways to bless other people. As we do that, your actions will tell you whether it's real. Watch what she does here. She said, verse 18, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Why? Did she have the son? Did, did God miraculously, immediately materialize, like, like on Star Trek where they stand in that machine and they get vaporized and then reappear whole somewhere? Did a son just pop up as she prayed? But her face was no longer downcast because she knew that her dream was of God. Whether the priest understood it or not, she knew it was of God and she had what she asked for. How do you know she believed and prayed with faith? Her actions showed it. I get to counsel a lot of people. I do that. I, I never asked for that. I didn't even realize that when you were called the pastor that that was a part of the job. I've learned that through the last 15 years. Gave me a lot of mercy for the men who counseled me throughout my life. And people will look me right in the eye and say, God is first. He's number one. But there is nothing in their actions that would indicate that. They said, but I, everything that I'm doing, I'm doing for Him. And what I see written above their forehead is, you're doing it for you. Every once in a while, you'll get to a moment of clarity where somebody pours out their soul and says, truthfully, I don't know what I'm doing. That is the place where hope begins. Hope begins when Hannah begins to pour out her soul because as she does that, now she can receive a divine vision from God. I will receive a son that I can give back to God, something that is selfless, something that is pure. And then how do you know that the vision was of God and that she clung to it? because her face was no longer downcast. Does that mean she had no doubts? Does that mean she didn't wrestle? Did that mean that when she went home, the same rival wife was not there picking at her? Yeah, how about that word, ladies? Rival wife. That's enough to make you spit right there, isn't it? Verse 19. Early the next morning, 
they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Why did the Lord remember her? Do you think He forgot her? She's building a memorial like Cornelius in the New Testament. How did Cornelius build his memorial? Through his godly actions. James 2.18 has become the hallmark scripture of our church. I will show you my faith by what I do. I will show you my faith by what I do. Sometimes pulling the corners of your mouth towards the heavens is the biggest statement of faith you could ever make. I choose to be happy while being provoked by a rival wife, mocked by a wicked priest, and held in a place without hope because she knew that her God would come through. By the way, you ever been surrounded by rich friends? I went to a private school. (coughs) Sometimes the cars that they drove into the parking lot cost as much as our house. And we weren't poor. My parents did very well. There's this attitude that creeps in us if we're not careful. Everybody around us has this. Everybody around us has that. They're all doubly important. They're all doubly fruitful. And we can get downhearted. If you possess a vision from God, you possess everything that is worth having. At the end of the day, you don't remember anybody's name in this story except Hannah and her vision. Hannah. All that is really as important is an undying, unceasing vision from God to press heavenwards towards. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Many people promise to do what Hannah did, but when it comes crunch time, they can't. I heard a man say, I threw away all of my secular albums because I became a Christian. And I spent the next 20 years trying to reassemble the collection. He really did love the Lord, but it is telling about what's in our heart. We're like merchants who find a pearl in a field and we go back and we sell everything that we have just to obtain that pearl. I'll do anything for you, Jesus. I love you. Just save me because you are the ultimate. And then after obtaining it, we begin to cloud our life with all of our possessions, all the cares and the worries of the world. And it begins to choke our trust in Him. It begins to cloud our vision. And pretty soon there are many competing idols in our life besides the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. He's jealous. He'll tolerate no rivals. And you're either sold out all the way for Him or you're a slave to sin. There is no middle ground. And every time you identify something in your soul that doesn't belong, something in your body that doesn't belong, you must make it submit to what your spirit knows is right regardless of the consequence, regardless of the cost. When the man Elkanah and went up with his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. You think there's a temptation for Hannah to say he's not weaned? I know he's 38 yet, but he's not weaned. I have two children. My sister has a couple kids, her and her husband. I watch you with your kids. I admire those of you that have already done this. But we all take our kids and we say, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. But when it comes time to releasing them, even gradually, incrementally, within our home, it is the hardest thing that we have ever done. I don't like my son to be out of my sight. I really don't. But at some point, if he's going to do all that God's called him to do, I have to allow that. I can't say he's not weaned forever. Can you emphasize a little bit with Hannah here? She has cried for, she has fought for, she has prayed. And now all she has, she has to give back to God again. If you're not at that moment where anything that you have, you'll give back to God again, you need to question your salvation again. Because it's not a life that one time sold out for God. It's not something that happened 20 years ago. It is right now, right now, all that I am is God. 
I have a friend that speaks about 20 years ago this happened, 20 years ago this happened, 20 years ago this happened. That's great. What happened today? Today. God doesn't owe us anything. Not one of us. Do what seems best to you. Elkanah, that means he's a very wise husband. Her husband told her, Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. <laughs> uh, there's a real translation issue there. Uh, most people believe that what that actually says is may you make good your word to the Lord. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After his wean, she took the boy with her young. She took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Not only is she giving up that which was given to her, she's sending him off with an offering. I know a man that poured out his pot into a toilet and cried over every leaf that fell in there because it was the most precious thing that he owned. He'd been born again in six months and been fighting with that thought. He was saving it just in case, you know. In case this Jesus thing doesn't quite work out. And cried with every leaf that fell in the toilet. And I can empathize with that because I know what it's been like to have to give up something that is secure before us. But if you want to be great before God, send it off with a blessing. Send it off with something else that is sacrificial. It's not enough that she gave back to God what He gave to her. She sent something else in addition to that. This speaks of going the extra mile to hanitize your life. It is also required if he's going to be a Nazarite. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life to be given over to the Lord. For you to have anything that is going to be given wholly over to the Lord, a business, a child, a spouse, you first have to be given wholly over to the Lord. You lie and deceive yourself if you say, when I get this, then I will be wholly devoted to the Lord. It never works that way. You have to be wholly devoted to the Lord in order to receive something that you can wholly devote to the Lord. We're through here. But before we stand and pray, a note. Go look at Luke 1, 46. This is Mary's song before the Lord. And hear in Mary's song the voice of Hannah. And then when you read the second chapter of 1 Samuel, know that her song ends with this word. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There had never been a king in Israel. And the word anointed has never been used in the context of a political slash religious leader like this before. Hannah knew that her birthing Samuel was foreshadowing something greater. And you hear her words in Mary. I'm suggesting, saints, today that if you get pregnant with the promises of God, all the potential of God is possible in your life. That if you refuse to be downcast, except broken where you didn't get God's Word right, that He'll fill you in every way. That if you'll give your whole life to the Lord, you'll have lots to give Him all of your life. And life will be better. Can you say amen to that? Yes. You want to get hanitized? Yes. How do you get hanitized? You act like Hannah. Give God everything that you are. Stand up to your feet.